oh, I'm just sitting in a comfy chair smoking weed. Here, shit. Everyone wants to pick a fucking fight. Adrian, you know that you're hosting this episode, right? Oh, so I got to do the, the intro? You're coming in loud and, and proud. Take a deep breath. You're good. This is Slashers, your new favorite podcast about your new favorite horror media. My name is Adrian. And with me today are my <laughs> colleagues, co-hosts, and cohorts, Adam, Doug, and Jake. Hello, you beautiful people. You she didn't beautiful tell you people. to say hello. She she didn't say it. I took initiative. I have to do it over again because Jake is <laughs> trying to fuck with me again. I was just doing the blue meanie dance is all I was doing. I don't know how you know what that is. I was just excited to be here. I'm pretty sure that Adam and I are in the blue world order. Is that right? You're my Stevie Richards. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, Aid could have cut you off, uh, Adam. She could have said, I didn't give you permission to say that. <laughs> didn't give you permission to speak. Your words are a hand over her mouth, sir. I'm pulling a Courtney. Somebody get me a fucking jawbreaker right now. <laughs> oh, you naughty, naughty. I boys. got two jawbreakers right here. Okay. This is Slashers, your new favorite podcast about your new favorite horror media. My name is Adrian, and with me today are my colleagues, co-hosts, and cohorts, Adam, Doug, and Jake. Boys, say hello to the mutant goons from beyond. Hello, you beautiful people, you beautiful people. Yes. Oh, yes, we're in for some jaw-breaking experience, and now I just realized my name says Dung on the, 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 the Zoom. <laughs> you didn't know that? I thought that was deliberate. Anyway, I'm Jake. Uh, that's really cute. <laughs> I thought it was on purpose. I was like, that's a great new alias. We got Ad Doom and everything, and then there's Dung. Well, I was talking to Cortana on here, so maybe that's why Cortana's a dead format. She doesn't listen. She thinks <laughs> when I say Doug, it's Dung. Rude-ass bitch. <laughs> After Doug met my kid, I don't know if I mentioned this on the show. So I have the the little baby one. Doug leaves my house and this fat shit kid is like, Doug, 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 Doug for like the next hour. I have video of it. I was like, what the hell? You're never like dad, dad. And I was like, this is bullshit. Nobody likes me. No, it's, you're no it's respect. Paul Dung. <laughs> yeah. This is the universe writing the wrong. Like, sure, Jake's kid likes you more than him, but Cortana likes me more than you. Yeah, I mean, was that his first word spoken yet? Has he has he said mama, daddy yet? Uh, he makes sounds that sound great. I mean, he's even said my daughter's name like perfectly, but then like trying to get him to recreate it. So it's a different story. Uh, well, I should be honored. Doug, Doug. Doug. OK, so now I know like the, the best people uh, that inspire to the name Doug drew all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good show. That's a good show. Let's talk about the month. This month is maybe horror films. And this month we decided, or I decided, because I'm a girl and I said so, that we are doing Jawbreaker. How do we Fantastic feel about that? Fantastic choice. Honestly, I'll, I'll be completely candid. I pushed back a little bit because I've always considered this a horror movie and I didn't think that it was necessarily there. But then especially in rewatching it, I was like, yeah, this is definitely a movie that's a tweener more so than I ever remembered it. Because when you think about the subject matter and you think about the great performances, those moments are horrific, but the whole presentation is much more teen movie. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think this was a great choice, Adrian, and I'm not pandering. Thank you. And this was a first time watch for me because I always kind of passed it up. Uh, it always looked like kind of Mean Girls and uh, uh, what's the other one? Like Clueless. And I don't know. Just As never been- These girls were a lot meaner. Oh, they were. Well, the Courtney's a psychopath, and I have oh. notes to prove it too. A fucking psychopath. And the scary thing is, I know people like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Adam, what do you think? 
I think it's fantastic. Honestly, uh, this came out when I was just balls deep in high school and the rewatch was definitely a different experience with time. It's I can definitely see how much darker the content is in this movie as a teen. I don't think I picked up on a lot of the subtleties, but yeah, I, I watched it twice. I watched it last night and then popped it on again this morning. I'm really glad that we all enjoyed it, especially Doug. You said it was your first watch. So it was. Yeah. And so I'll definitely have it's something I would want to watch on Blu-ray because I watched on Pluto and there's like, I think I counted 30 ads I had to watch. Mm. <laughs> that first one's obnoxious, right? I thought that it had broken and glitched. I think I watched like eight ads in the first commercial break. Were they all Olive Garden? Yeah, Olive well. Garden, Red Lobster. <laughs> yeah. I thought they were pandering to me because I got sunburnt all over the forehead and I looked like Red Lobster. So I thought they were... <laughs> oh. Alexa heard that too. Shh. But yeah, I mean, to say how much I liked it, I mean, I watched it on Pluto and then I just went and kind of snagged it on Amazon. I wanted that in the collection. It wasn't there and uh, now it is. Yeah, I bought it. I bought it because I, I remember I used to rent it all the time back in the day, you know, on VHS, right? Mm-hmm. And then... I had it on VHS. And so, oh, that's really cool. And so I, you know, I was like, well, I don't know why I don't own it yet because I love this movie and I love to revisit it. And usually I just re-rent it again or because it, it never really streams on anything. I never, I hardly ever see it stream on anything. So that's really true. You never see that one pop up. Uh, well, I was going to say, I feel like it's just one of those movies that's overshadowed, like Clueless and all that Mean Girls, like kind of overlaps it. So, you know, when these people are picking it up for streaming, they're just like, oh, yeah, that, we'll just get it in some pile, burn it, keep it on DVD, like nothing but trouble. That's what I feel like this kind of as a release, like is nothing but trouble. You never see those two. You know? Oh, yeah. Well, and this year was really terrible as far as teen movie content, you know, that you had, you know, obviously Cruel Intentions came out. You had The Rage Carry 2. You had American Pie. You had 10 Things I Hate About You. So this angsty teen area was very, very bloated, I felt. And also thematically, there were other movies that kind of came around. And I didn't even think about this. So this movie came out February 19th, 2090. Or excuse me, 2099. I'm a big Marvel Comics fan. 1999. Miguel. Uh, You know what came out the week before this? Blast from the Past. Now pull up one of those oh. posters and pull up one of this film's posters. You would think it's like the same genre of movie with the hyper colors and the kind of retro aesthetic, which I had never even considered as a kid. That's arguably that's a horror movie too. Oh yeah. Uh, that guy yeah, holds his family one. hostage for 30 years and then he like ends up some Oedipal language in there somewhere. Stockholm syndrome or something, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's when they're in the oh, I was thinking of the black and white, the one with Reese Witherspoon. What the hell is that one called? Oh, uh, Pleasantville. Pleasantville. That's that what movie's I was amazing. Of. That blast yeah. from the past. She's but... all flicking that bean, and all of a sudden it's technical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the director said when he interviewed him, but I felt really strong vibes. It's not as, um, I wouldn't say as vulgar as a John Waters film, but I feel like he took a lot of inspiration from something like Hairspray. Bing, bing, bing. Yes, that was a huge inspiration. And as Doug alluded, we will be featuring an interview with Darren Stein, writer and director momentarily so just put up with us rambling for a little while longer gang but yeah it definitely has that stylization i i know those visual cues that are almost uh, it's just very technicolor very tongue-in-cheek very dark jokes like uh, i killed the teenage dream (laughs) deal with it like it's just it is it's very john waters and honestly we had talked about themes you know if you go through darren's been very consistent with what he referenced being his inspiration and motivation and everything and one of the ones that he drew upon was you know like valley of the dolls and faster pussycat kill kill which 
for you who have the Patreon video exclusive, you can see my background for that very specific reason. And I always refer to Faster Pussycat as Proto Grindhouse because it's like just before. And I think that it just hits so well. And if you looked at this movie as a spiritual successor or like maybe you take it as like one of these gals descendants, kind of works pretty nicely. Oh, it does. Yeah. With Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill, the, the, the one that really drives that movie like pro grind before Grindhouse is the dialogue like that. What makes it so filthy and, and just it's just the dialogue is so off the wall. And that's kind of how this one goes in into place, too. So, yeah, definitely. And there's a close similarity there. You have to think of, too, in 99 for girls to behave in such a way. Remember, and, and I only know this now because living it, I don't necessarily remember these things because I was so much younger. But if you watch, we were talking about this before we started that Britney Spears documentary and how she was treated and vilified for quote unquote, dressing as a slut and whore, blah, blah, blah. And then just saying whatever she wanted to say. And they're giving her all this shit for it. The fact that this movie did such a good job at like portraying those kinds of things. And while it didn't get the best ratings, I guess, I feel we're still talking about it over 20 years later. So it did such a better job, I think. And I don't put it in the same pack with Clueless and with... It's more cult. Yeah. Definitely. Well, see, I thought Clueless was about um, uh, incest. I, I was looking at it out of context, like when she gets together with the... Uh, it's like, oh, it's her step bro. Oh. So it's just a front for Pornhub. <laughs> yeah, it's just Pornhub now. Yeah, but he's not her stepbrother anymore. He's they, his par- Their parents divorced, so he was... Yeah. So they were, they were Pornhub before Pornhub. He's <laughs> free real estate. <laughs> One thing I wanted to say about uh, just roles being portrayed, uh, Dane was like refreshingly not that much of a douchebag jock like Courtney's boyfriend in this. It's like a lot of these movies you see, he's more of like, a, I'm a dick, but he wasn't that bad. He, he liked her like he, he liked her. I mean, I guess he was getting laid. Right. So, yeah. Well, that popsicle scene was something pretty much right out of a John Waters. Oh, like, exactly. That's an amazing scene. <laughs> it really is. I should have asked Darren about it because he's an openly gay man. And at this time, if you think about it, 1999, I even talked about this element of it was like people were still saying F-A-G-G-O-T and gay for everything. And it was really just very common. And I felt like that was such an antagonistic, like, hi, proto jock. You are so hyper masculine that you are willing to put yourself in the scenario. I really love that fetishizing of him being penetrated. I was like, holy shit, this is intense. Dude, just the line she makes about him being on the wrestling team and questioning his sexuality. I mean, like, I've kind of witnessed that happen. I'd seen people who were very repressed in high school and ended up coming out that were very much on the wrestling team. And that, that one really struck a chord. But yeah, it's it's a really awesome power dynamic. And it just shows you how awesome Courtney is. So just kidding. <laughs> Before we get into the statistics kind of thing, I wanted to pro- talk about this because I think this, this show's the very narrow focus people had when this movie came out. So Roger Ebert gave this one and a half stars saying that it was a slick production of a lame script. If anyone in the plot had the slightest intelligence, the story would implode. He gave it the worst film of 1999 in the what's the matter with kids today category, defending cruel intentions, saying that this was a quote unquote whole lot worse. End quote. Now think about the way those two movies aged. This movie ages much better, I think, because of its hyper stylized presentation. Cruel Intentions looks awful. It is just weird. 
people don't talk and do those things. It just seems so, I don't even know, this grotesque movie. I don't like it. I think the stylization definitely does lend it that timeless feel, like you're saying. Like All I could keep thinking when I was watching it now and just how much everything popped and just the the snarky, sassy dialogue, the way it was delivered, it felt like a graph, like it could be a graphic novel to me kind of thing it just oh hell yeah i would love to read the jawbreaker graphic novel i would love to see someone awesome illustrate that that would be so cool like i could see that just taking on a whole nother level but i feel as a movie it really achieves that pop that well you know the wardrobe and everything they they were looking for things that were aesthetically pleasing obviously like bright they were looking for outfits that kind of you know, mimicked things from the 50s and 80s. There's a lot of circles to emulate the jawbreaker as well. So they did a really good job, I feel like, with the style of the movie and the aesthetic, right? And I I agree with you because I never liked Cruel Intentions growing up. I thought it was awful. It was the movie because, you know, Ryan Phillippe, Reese Witherspoon, Sarah Michelle Gellar, they were all like huge back then like you mm. remember especially with the with all of the other shit they were in they were the biggest like in freddie prince jr sarah michelle geller no with the other one jennifer love hewitt sorry oh, yeah, oh my god i don't know why i got them mixed up i guess because they have like the three names but those were the people of the time right so that's i that's why i feel like cruel intentions did the way like was so much more popular versus jawbreaker because I mean, yeah, Rebecca Gayhart, Rose McGowan, Julie Benz, they're in things. But aside from Rose McGowan, who was just in Scream, but she was blonde, like, who did people really, like, gravitate to in this movie back then? I mean, we know them now, but was it yeah. were they that big back then? I don't really. Well, also, this is like an extrapolation of a bit part into a leading role, right? You take Rose McGowan's character in Scream. She's basically the same typecast. It's mm-hmm. just aesthetically she looks different. But then you take that bit character and put her in a title role. It's very different. And I could see how some people would be off put because she is very similar. and Even her sexuality is similar. But I mean, I don't think that's a death knell for it. I'd, I think this should have been presented more as an ensemble cast rather than it. If you look at a lot of the marketing, it looks like it's starring Rose McGowan when I wouldn't really characterize it as such. Yeah. Now, question was, I can't remember, was this before or after Urban Legend? Just thinking about Rebecca Gayhart. Good point. This is after. Okay. Yeah. Cause she went from playing the crazy in that. And that was, she made a name for herself with that one, I guess, then. And that is that maybe why she got cast in this, you know, kind of in the darker horror movie thing. Well, she replaced Rachel Lee Cook. Rachel Lee Cook was supposed to play her role. And she had actually read for multiple parts. She even read for Courtney and then didn't get it. And so she had thought that she was like Miss Thing. She even talked about it kind of being somewhat disappointed by the fact that basically the director was like, no, you're you're the plain Jane. You're you're the normal. You know, I, I think that, you know, if you look at her, her saucy personal life, this lady, she's no plain Jane. Now, was she going for the role of Julie in the movie or Julie Benz's role? Rachel Lee Cook. That was the thing that confused me. Rachel Lee Cook was going for Julie and. Oh, the role of the Julie. Role of okay, Julie. not Julie Benz as role. Marcy. And no. okay. Rebecca, Ga- Rebecca Gerhart read for all of the other roles and she didn't get anything. And then I guess they came, they brought, brought her back for Julie from what okay. I read. And, you know, I mean, we could talk about some of the trivia if you want to go over that. Because yeah, I wrote a bunch great. of shit down. Although yeah. I don't, I'm sure I'm sure Jake surpassed me. So I got some notes. I got a few. Hey, but this is your show. You can take it. Go for it. Okay. So, well, we talked about why this may be horror, and I'm going to address a little bit more of that at the end. 
part at the end of the episode, I figure, because if we have like, or we can talk about it now, I don't know how you guys want to format each of these episodes, but I love the fact that each of the actors playing members of Liz's family, who is obviously the one with the jawbreaker in her throat, they're all like involved in Carrie somehow, like her parents are both in Carrie. So rad. Liz herself was in Rage Carry too. She was the bitch that Jason London screwed in the car. And then, you know, like the bad girl against the quote, second Carrie, if you want to call her that, but she's, you know, her sister, Rachel anyways. And then Judy Greer was in our, that shitty ass remake. I was waiting for it. (laughs) That fucking awful movie that I want to burn in hell. And I love that they made uh, like the pig's blood reference later on and stuff. They do. There's a lot of references to Carrie. I mean, even cool. you know the prom scene at the end, right? So, and you can tell like, he's a huge, uh, Darren Simon's a huge fan of Brian De Palma. And this clearly shows in this movie, which another Brian De Palma movie I love is Sisters. And I think it's on HBO Max right now. So if you guys haven't watched Ooh. it, oh my God. But there's like a lot of fun things. Like I, you know, Pam Greer is in this movie for Christ. Like he has all of these fun people in this movie. What's Icons, her name? man. Yeah. From, I, I, why can I think of her name? Carol Kane. Like all of these wonderful people in this movie that have all been in like, well, Pam Greer was like the black exploitation movies, but then Carol Kane was in even a stranger calls. Right. So there's like, all of these people who Jeff Conaway is in this movie for Christ's sake. Like he's got all of these amazing people in this movie. So if you haven't seen yeah. it, you need to stop everything you're doing and watching it. But there's a lot of fun things that I didn't like. I, I was reading from different things. We talked about the circular elements and how they're all shown to like to emulate the jawbreaker. So even their hoops, I wore hoops. Nice, nice. I wear hoops. And then like even other dresses, like especially with Marcy's clothes, she's always got like different circles or their sunglasses, like everything. The light fixtures are all circular in the movie. So I thought that was really cute. Really visually pops. Yeah. And and then we talked about how all of these actors or actresses are all in different horror films, like Rose McGowan, obviously from Scream, Rebecca Gayhart. Rebecca Gayhart's also in Scream too. Mm-hmm. So, Rorty sister. The sorority sister, along with Sarah Michelle Geller. Yep. <laughs> Julie Benz was in Buffy and then into Dexter. Yeah, she's also in the uh, the <coughs> that shriek. If I know what you did last summer too. So. Oh yeah. And then she was also in uh, one of my favorite action movies, Rambo Four. Oh, that's right. Yeah, she was the missionary yes. in that one. Oh my gosh! And then she was in um, Saw Five as well. I think she's the one that survived Saw Five. Did she wasn't put she? her hand in the thing? She put her hand in the table saw, yeah. Okay, all right, that was fun. Oh, and then what's his face from Gilmore Girls got crushed in that one. That's right, okay. Yeah. (laughs) But, oh, and Judy Greer. So Judy Greer, like, she's in this movie. She's batshit crazy playing Fern, right? When she gets to the door, my God. Oh, my God. Just outside the house. That speech. She, yeah, she made this comment that she said that when she was dressed as fur, like nobody on set paid attention to her. Like everybody just like ignored her. And then when she became Violet, all of a sudden everybody was up her ass. And she also felt like she was like intimidating to some people. Like the men were intimidating her or were intimidated by her as Violet, which I love. That's yeah. That's something you go girl. And I've read articles that like, I just read in, recently, like last year, an article with her in InStyle. And she was saying how she never felt sexy. She's never felt like a sexy character. And she had to film a sex a sex scene or something before. And I'm thinking to myself, did she fucking forget she was in Jawbreaker and she was Violet? Because how could she not feel like she's sexy? I mean, I think she like does a whole 180. She's a little scary. I mean, she's not like, like this, like she's not Rose McGowan. No, obviously. she gets a taste of power and then balances out. 
But she has. Uh, yeah, this... I don't think of her as sexy. I think that that's the know. point. Is that she, the pendulum sw- shifts so hard where she's antagonistic and kind of monstrous in that way. Like she's so overt that there's you know, like you were talking about earlier, men being kind of taken aback and almost like they become the pursued. And it's interesting, but I could see how it becomes so extra that it becomes something else. You know what I mean? Like it's not quite sexy because it's so domineering. I think being domineering is a sexy trait. No, no. I mean, I don't know. It can be. Yeah. But I think that there's Mm -hmm. a certain level of self-assuredness that makes that kind of attitude sexy. Like for instance, Mm -hmm. Courtney, she knows what she's doing. She's a master manipulator to the point of being like a dominatrix. Whereas with Fern, even at her best, she still seems rather impetuous and she's almost like a child doing dress up even when she's being effective. So it just, it has like this weird feeling of like, this isn't sexy. This is like you doing what you think sexy is, which is why it's so easy for her to pull back when she realizes, yeah, I've gone too far and I've had some pretty massive head trauma. Oh yeah, no, I know. <laughs> Bless her heart. <laughs> but there's and there's one scene, and I'll this will be the last thing I say. I mean, there's a bunch of shit I could talk about, but let's talk about all of your shit. It's your episode. You're gonna talk about all the shit. <laughs> yeah, this is literally the point of the episode. It's supposed to be verbal diarrhea. I'm ending this right now. This chicanery. I, this whole month and next month, all of you slashers pod listeners, I'm breaking the fourth wall. I'm talking to you. I trust my new co-hosts so inherently that I have created two months of content so that they can all shine because I want them to be able to be full-fledged hosts and basically be here even if I'm not here. And so I believe in Adrian. I want her to take this episode. I believe in Adam. I want him to take his episode. Doug, eh, just kidding. I believe in Doug, obviously. And this month's content, each of us is getting one episode where we're going to host. Next month with Rejuvenate, again, each one of us is going to push one episode. And if that works, if you like it, that's going to be this show moving forward. Let us know, slasherspod at gmail.com, at slasherspod on any goddamn social media platform. Or if you don't want to hurt these sensitive pricks' feelings, message me privately at, at Gacy Jones on Instagram. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do want to say, people, that I also have access to the Slasher Spot Instagram. So if you're sending any booby pics to Jake, I see it too. Yay. I've okay, never first seen- off, that's never happened. <laughs> Please say so on the record so that my wife, who maybe will listen to this episode, does no, not get mad. There any booby pics. I'm just kidding. Oh, my God. Oh but my you God. never know. You might get like a dick at some point, like right? Probably. Like a the law dick. of averages, and especially with how much I talk about them. I know. Which you should. So you know how it feels. But anyways, moving back to Jawbreaker. So there is a scene in the bathroom. Remember when uh, Courtney pulls Violet in the bathroom and she like throws her up against the mirror and Violet's like playing with something shiny and my dumb ass thinking, oh, she's got her phone in her hand. Let's she do it. I'm like, oh, that's not a phone. This is a nice shiny nine. What the fuck is in her hand? It's like a little cigarette case. And she pulls out a cigarette and the director, Darren Stein, and this is what I read. I forgot to ask him if this is true or not. This is just something I read in a couple different places, but asked her, uh, asked Judy Greer to blow smoke in Rose McGowan's face. And unbeknownst to Rose McGowan, so she had no idea that she was going to blow smoke in her face. And I guess she blew the smoke in her face. And that's when, like, Rose McGowan's actually very pissed in that scene that she did that. Like, what the fuck? And that's why she pulled the cigarette out. Like, she just pulled the cigarette out of her mouth and threw it. Like, that wasn't supposed to happen. So I'm like, it is so good. Like, it's such a power flex. Like, when she does that, like, just as someone that used to smoke cigarettes and who has gotten face to face with people at concerts and shit like that, that's a power flex right there. 
Yeah, so Rose McGowan was not having that shit. And she also got pissed off too at the end, Rose McGowan. And not, I'm not talking bad about her. I just, I'm just saying this because, you know, we love the cheese may here, right, Doug? So, Senor. <laughs> apparently uh, at the end, remember when she's at prom and she's wearing all those headbands on her head, right? All those silver headbands in her hair and her hair looked like something out of like, like Star Trek or whatever. Yep. She was pissed off because Rebecca Gayhart had little things in her hair and she wanted something more interesting. So she like stormed back to the trailer to get like her hair done up. So she looked more, you know, better, not better than Rebecca Gayhart, but just had more things going Extra. on. Right. It's funny. Cause I, I actually read that while I was watching it a second time with Ash. And like, right after I read it, that scene came on and Ash was like, Oh man, those straps in her hair are awesome. I was like, Oh, there's a story there. Which I can understand, and that which makes sense because Courtney would be that would be that way, right? Like Courtney would demand to look better, so why wouldn't she have something? It was super method. Yeah, we're not going to talk about anything else with this, but you know, Marilyn Manson does have his cameo, and it's funny because I knew that he was in this movie when I was a kid, but I couldn't pick him out. Like I didn't get who he was, and yeah. I was too I was too impatient to watch credits. Ew. <laughs> he was the creepiest looking motherfucker on the planet in this movie. Like, I don't think I've ever seen anyone make my skin crawl like he does in that minute long scene. Or basically anything, if I may be so bold. I, he mm, he always weirds me out. And it's not like the androgyny with the fake tits and stuff. Like, he's just got the grossies. We were watching and then Yahira was watching it with me. She's like, ew, that guy's gross. And I'm like, oh, that Marilyn Manson. She's like, that's not Marilyn Manson. That's what I was saying. <laughs> Dude, grosser than any fake tit alien fucking persona he's ever come up with. Just that slick back hair and fucking pedo stash. Like, uh, he looked like a Dollar General version of Tiny Tim. That's what he looked like. You have to think, too, because I mean, I don't know. You guys were. Well, Adam was older back then. So I don't know. Oh, my God. Are you OK? Oldest. <laughs> Are you? <laughs> Ooh. I thought you Ooh. were like you're emulating Marilyn Manson, yes. right? Yes. But so back in the day, like I never, like no one ever saw what he really looks like. Yeah. You know, I mean, I only ever saw him on music videos and like on the magazines every now and again. But I never saw his actual face. So like saw I didn't this, know. It was like put it back on, put it back on. I'm like, who was he? I don't get it. Who was he? But anyways, I don't know why I'm telling. Have you that ever story. seen Wrong Cops? Mm-mm. He's in it and he has like this members only jacket. It's not a good movie, but I did see it. And honestly, it's so funny. He will never bounce back from that. Like he could lose all the baby weight or whatever and become like shredded death god. And I'd still be like, eh. Oh, was he? Was he a chonky boy? Oh, yeah. Cause he's all chubby now, isn't he? He's been that yeah. way for like 20 years, though. I mean, he went from like bulimic space alien to pudgy boy. Because he was thin. There is a there's a video of him where I was like, okay, I can see why girls would sleep with him because I would sleep with him in that outfit. But other than that. <laughs> yeah, I think he dieted for like a year and then just went right back to it. <laughs> there was like corsets and stuff to try and help him out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He had a little corset on. And maybe that was how maybe he was the start of getting chubby. He went from hot topic <laughs> to torrid. I just thought he always looked so ugly. If he, that's probably why he doesn't have cats. They think that he's the litter, and they just shovels cat litter yeah, on him. He's a big turd man. Ah. Uh, anyway, but yeah, he was in there. So we, well, we all know who he is. He's the the guy that Courtney hooks up with at the bar. So in case all of you listening at home didn't know that that's him, that's him. And then we have so Pam Greer has this contract 
Pam Greer, that she is in charge of all of her wigs for her movies, right? So her hair was like her choice in that movie. And then I went down this really weird rabbit whoa, hole whoa, whoa, where whoa, I found whoa, pics whoa. of her dating. She's not in charge what? of one wig. She wears a combination of at least three wigs in this movie yeah. at one time. And it is breathtaking. That hair is luscious. You can't move on. This looks like the fucking cowardly lions. I literally said that. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, good thing she doesn't go on a hunting trip. They might shoot her think she's a quail or something. <laughs> like, you guys are looking at her hair. Like, I'm listening to the way she's talking to the girls. And, well, that and when she's holding the jawbreaker, she's a really good actress. Like, she's amazing. So I'm not, like, just staring at her it's hair. Fabulous. But I can see why people are like, oh, my God, her hair. Well, I had read the trivia before rewatching this. So that's probably why it was on my brain before I had never even given it a second thought. I'll be honest. Okay. Oh, no, she was like, I had the hots for her growing up because I used to watch coffee all the time on VHS. And I'm just I'm like, oh, I know I shouldn't have been watching it. When I was like six <laughs> oh years old. But, you know. <laughs> I thought you were going to say uh, Mars Attacks that you were watching that. Well, she was a little older then. I wasn't into MILFs then. But, uh, you know. Uh, but did you guys? Well, I, I went down this whole rabbit hole with her and I found her date like pics, pictures of her dating <laughs> Freddie Prince. And she was with Richard. I think she was engaged to Richard Pryor. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, how did I never know this? Like the fact that she was with Richard, with Freddie Prince. How did I not know this? Oh my God. So senior, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. Isn't that strange? I know. It's like comes full circle. That's so and you funny. may recall that she was in beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Firstly, I love Valley of the Dolls. So just took a side note. That could be a horror movie. Yeah. Oh, maybe next year. Who wants to see a grindhouse month? Let us know. Slash is about a about it. I'd love to. If you guys are down, we are. Ooh, I'm about that'd that be too. Fun. So let's look around. Okay, I have here. to interject. And of course, we- you talk about a bathroom scene. You talk about the wrong bathroom scenes. Talk about the other bathroom scene. Rose McGowan, she flubs. She flubs pretty hard. Now, my boy Darren, he and I are really close now after this interview that we're about to cue to. And you know, I feel like I I can speak very comfortably and know he meant to do a Robocop reference, but Rose McGowan clearly fucked it up when she said all right you bitches out when clearly she meant to say bitches leave i thought you were gonna talk about when they shoved when they when they shoved fern into the mirror like that that mirror was a real mirror i don't know if it was meant to break like that i thought you were flubbing up there yeah i noticed that the second time through dude that shit was broke i'm like man that falls in your iced and sliced well i'm sorry jake that she flubbed your robocop reference that's why she was only nominated for Best Villain in an MTV Music Award instead of actually winning it because Clarence Bodiger would have won it. Let me tell you right now. Oh, my gosh. Well, she she should have won it. Who won it that year? My research has anyways, to stop but... at some point, you realize. <laughs> I know. I'm thinking to myself, that was so far back. Who the hell remembers? Anyway, 22 um, years ago. But... I know. Oh, doesn't that make you sad? Like I was just when he said that earlier, today, I was like this. I'm like, this oh, film God. has passed the legal age of consent. <laughs> Oh, God, it's so sad. Which, by the way, Rebecca Gayhart is in GBF that we were talking about. Has the other film, one of the other films he's uh, Darren Science directed. And she, you could tell she's older, but she still looks amazing. Like, can we talk about her? We can talk about her. I don't want to talk about the, the other, the bad stuff, but if you want to talk about it, you oh, can like talk about it. Oh, like the fact that she's a fucking murderer. <gasps> bum, bum, bum. Don't say she didn't mean to do it. She was. She hit a kid by mistake, right? Or something. Yeah, They settled out of court and yeah. everything. She was on probation for a few years. It was with the guy who she was in from dust till dawn. Ooh, three terrible. Mm. Was it purposely or? No, it was a complete accident, but she's actually killed people. Oh. So I feel like she should have been Courtney after all. 
Yeah, and she now she's going to be punished with a license plate that's that basically spells out toddler speed bump. Oh no, no! And then dog. I'm going to keep pushing on because <laughs> she did. I have to. There was the gawker thing with the with the ah she did. Who keeps moving? The gawker thing where they published the video of her in a threesome. She allegedly smoked crack, and then she bounces back with GBF. But we have to address this because it's almost as if she was like, huh. This fictional character who was my foil 20 years ago, hold my beer. Well, I'm sure after she ran someone over, she was not feeling good about herself. So, you know, my favorite part of her in this whole movie, it what? mirrors Labyrinth. You know, my second favorite movie of all time. It's when they go to the parking lot and they are this close to finding the fucking Polaroid, oh, and they yeah, don't find it. Picture, it reminds yeah. me of the worm who's like, nah, I should have kept going that way. Straight to the Polaroid. <laughs> Which I can say, too, um, I didn't realize it, but in the beginning where you, the Bob's Big Boy, where they're at, that I used to live right down the street from there. In fact, that's where we filmed Gross House was right there. And we had we had food at Big Boy about three weeks ago, and we were sitting in that same exact parking lot because they were making a seat outside. So right where that, that photo fell into the sewer, <laughs> that's where we sat. I'm like, oh, shit, that's where we sat. Fuck. Yeah, that's so cool. <laughs> no, and I'm like, maybe I should see if there's a picture of a jawbreaker dead girls down here. I'm like, nope, not this one. Not this one. <laughs> Next oh, that's, time. That missing person's there. Nope, nope. Oh, here it is. Yeah, and the final thing I want to say about this, about our trivia, is the fact that it was only shot in 30 days from what from I read. From January 18th to March 10th of 1998. I keep wanting to go to the future for some reason. There's no 2099 yet. We'll be dead. Speak for yourself. I'll be a head in a jar on a robot with a giant <laughs> robo dick. Hydraulic peen. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh my God. Where was it? I just lost it. Me, you know what? You know what Adrian well, she, would be if she was a robot? She'd be a cyborg. <laughs> I'll have, I'll let you know something about the filming schedule. Did you know, uh, notice that the, uh, the high school looked familiar. That's because of Buffy, the vampire slayer. Original, not the TV show, which I have never watched a full episode of. That's why it looks so familiar. Oh, that's interesting. Yep. Yeah, I love them. Oh, rest in peace, Luke Perry. Oh, my gosh. Paul Rubens rules. He's really good. Rutger Howard, right? But, Aid, you should watch AEW because Luke Perry's son, Jack Perry, is Jungle Boy, and he is a great wrestler. He was the one that was in uh, the documentary with You Can't Kill David Arquette, right? Um, Correct. At the very end when they do like the tribute thing to him. But yeah, it, it's really cool. Oh, interesting. So this was actually intended to be a horror movie. But yeah, so when he started writing the script, he based it on a group of girls that I guess he knew that would kidnap each other in real life on their birthdays. And so what could possibly go wrong from this, right? And so this was actually intended to be a horror script and eventually it became more of a comedy, dark comedy as he was writing the script. So I thought that was really interesting. Can I just say that the cartoon sound effects sprinkled in throughout do like a weird thing to cover how dark this film is. Uh, yeah. Blah, 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 just with even the with like yeah. the transitions, there's like a zoe. Yeah. I, I feel like they had to do that to not get, cause I saw somewhere that like they had a, 
censor it down a bit just to get it there. And I know like some movies like category three films from Hong Kong and stuff for those extreme films, what they would do is, you know, it'd have extreme content and, you know, take itself seriously. But then you'd have little points where there's some scenes where like there's goofy cops or there's, there's some comedy and there's Halloween because they feel like it, you don't want it too dark and depressing. That's all I kept thinking when the cops show up outside of Rachel's house and don't, they don't, you know, that's what I, it, yeah, exactly. But, <laughs> but that like that wasn't kept even intense popping into fuck? my head, but it works in this film in a weird way. It just puts this. I was saying lip gloss over a herpy in a sense. You know, it's just weird. It's something to cover it up. How dark it is. Yeah, I thought the I thought the editor at first, instead of pouring his protein into his uh, shake, he just poured a bunch of cocaine. He's like, oh, this, this is OK. This is OK. That sounds good. Well, you know, I that's the it whole works. aesthetic of the movie. Like it's meant to I feel like people were trying to to pigeonhole this with the rest of the teen movies of of that year, but it doesn't belong in that category at all. It belongs in a horror category. And so it's it's a horror. It, well, we can talk about it, but, you know, when you they open the trunk in the first couple of minutes, when they open the trunk and her eyes are like this awful color and the jawbreaker is sticking out of her fucking throat. I remember like I, I could still like picture. I remember when I saw that as a kid, I was just like, because I didn't know they were going to go there. Like you watched the trailer, you knew that somebody was going to die. It's impactful. I'd say that's worse than Drew Barrymore in the beginning of Scream. When you see her like that, her body in that trunk hit me harder. Yeah, because it's so sad. Like, and then I always thought, and this is awful, but I always think like how awful she died. Exactly. It's like, Like, you think about it. It just went in her throat. And she was probably awake for it the whole time. I could do anything about it. Uh, I can't think about it anyway. Yeah, well, here's from another first time viewer too. Like, like I said, it, since we're doing it, maybe horror month. So I already kind of knew it's like, okay, I had no idea it would have dark elements like this, but imagine the people that went to see this in the theater, you know, you see that bright pink, green and, and blue color on the poster and you see, it, and that's within like the first few minutes. Mm-hmm. And then you get that dark where she, her eyes are like glazed over and the, and the, it's just, it's grisly. And and I think that's why Roger Ebert had a heart attack. Hence why he lost his jaw oh, later. Job but, broken. Know, jaw breaker. There you go. <laughs> oh, Oh, that is amazing. Oh, shit. <laughs> I did not expect this to go there. <laughs> well, it was a jawbreaker joke. I think that's all I got. Yeah, see, that's what happens. You get a one point, oh. one star. On the, you know, for this <laughs> I can't. I cannot. <laughs> so that's our trivia for the film. We also have our statistics. Should we move along yeah. to that? Sure. We can do that. Okay. All right. So budget of... 3.5 million. I don't know if anybody saw anything else. Nope, that was consistent. Gross 3.1. That's sad. I know. But it had bloated competition. It opened at number 13. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that was in theaters. I'm at this glad point. that it became what it did and like kind of have a cult following and that it is something that we're doing right now. It's it's fun and dark in so many ways. And like you couldn't imagine cruel intentions pulling mm-hmm. off those sound effects. Ryan Phillippe just being like, you know. <laughs> Now, see, did they intend for the advertising to be the way it was? Like, I'm sure they could have marketed yeah. maybe a different way, like from the because po- the poster looks like Spice World or uh, uh, Sugar and Spice. Yeah. You know what I mean? Something like that. So people that you know, general audiences that go into this expecting something like that and you get this 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 very dark film. I don't know if that's why it didn't resonate with the majority. It's got its cult now. But, you know, I don't know. Was that an, was that a problem with the advertising? That's my question. I also think the advertising was wrong. Have you seen the trailer? 
Yeah, they do like yeah, the I've whole the uh, fellatio on the popsicle and stuff. It, it's just totally a mishmash. You know, the way that it's presented, you know, you have the image of like them in the garb when they're actually doing the kidnapping and stuff. It's just not clear. And I think that it's just the wrong tone. The, the tone is, hey, you remember Grindhouse films? You'll love this. If you market this the same way you did Kill Bill, dude, you're doing aces. But they just didn't understand what they had. And that's one of the crazy things is like Darren even kind of talks about the fact that this movie exists at all is kind of bizarre because this was like a B-level Sony production. It was not like a major studio doing honestly, this. Honestly, this one is going into heavy rotation. Like when I'm working on artwork and stuff, this one's going on in the background. Like I forgot how great this movie was and it's it deserves a new life. People give it love. Go check it out if you haven't seen it. It's it's really a treat. It's a unicorn. And if you wanted like darker kind of fringe comedy the same day office space came out and i could i know i saw that that's a tough (laughs) competition because like sure the age group is different but the style of humor as it's presented is kind of similar the satirical dryness to it yeah but then also you had in the weeks that followed you had obviously cruel intentions came out two weeks later you had the rage carry Two, ravenous and then American Pie. Oh, and there's this one movie called The Matrix, which fucking everybody saw and 10 Things I Hate About You. So, I mean, while it's in theaters, you have a bunch of stuff over and over again. Even Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels came out at this time. And that movie, again, kind of this like pulp grindhouse kind of film. So there's just a lot going on. And I think that they tried to cast the like the broadest brush or the widest net. And if they would have just narrowly focused, mm. they would have done much better. Yeah, but see, this is when the Edge Lords all kind of came out in like the late '90s and early 2000s, because you know everything was starting to turn dark. And even in high school, it was like cool, it was like hip to be like, "Oh yeah, look at this! This is like a death thing." Uh, you know what I mean? That's the mm-hmm. same time like Joe Cartoon and Newgrounds and all that was really big. And um, hey, you remember Joe Cartoon where they put the the hamster in the blender and he talks? Yeah, and he gets around. Yeah, the, the stuff like that, the edgy stuff. And I feel like this is just part of that, which uh, makes late 90s, early 2000s a really fun time to revisit because they make dark things comical. Mm-hmm. Can I say something? Goths are never accurately portrayed. Oh, in you movies. mean the one who had the finger in the abortion? That one? <laughs> yeah, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> the thing is, if you're a goth and you have one piercing, you have to have all the piercings. It's like, yeah, it, it just always makes me laugh seeing goths portrayed in film back then. Yeah, because they're, they're obviously they're a little trope, right? They're yep. never the main characters. In fact, that's probably why I loved the Rage Carry 2 so much because we finally had a girl that actually was goth. Was more on that side. Yeah, that normal, was normal. Yeah. yeah, normal goth, right? I mean, that's a great point. Can't say normal, right? Because that's like whatever they always say in South Park, you're conformist. Um yeah. <laughs> so but Rachel is is more of a And she's the main character. And that's why I loved her because I was more like her growing up. Mm -hmm. But then I saw, and I I know they came out the same movie, but I must've saw Carrie before because I've rented all these. I wasn't, nobody took me to go see these movies. I couldn't go see these movies. Right. So I must've rented this later after, because I saw Rage Carrie too. And I loved it so much, but I was like, okay, what if we can be dark and then also be hot? And that's what Courtney is. Like she's dark, but she's also like the puppy colors and the, Fun, like, but she's like such a fucking like crazy fun character. So she like kind of combines all of those elements, and she's got a tattoo, so she's kind of a little, you know, whatever, you know, edgy. And she's sleeping with Marilyn Manson, but you know, <laughs> I kept comparing her to Patrick Bateman. 
Like, <laughs> you know, that American Psycho 2 shit with Mila Kunis? No, like it, Rose McGowan was a much more uh, convincing psycho sociopath in this film. That's uh-huh. just kind of like a female 90s teenage Patrick Bateman. That's where I was at with this. Yeah, at first I thought she was that that girl from uh, the. She was called VHS. You don't know if you remember that that movie, the one where her head yeah. splits open. Yeah, that's what she reminded me of. But then I found out she was the one with the machine Planet gun. Terror, yeah, in uh, another Planet grind Terror, so. film. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. She's, she's also in Death Proof, as I pointed out to Adam, who forgot. But she is actually another blonde in Death Proof, and she's the one that Kurt Russell kills in the car when he takes her home. She loses her face. Yeah, she, like, she go? She and she got like. At the, did she get a real car accident in real life? That's why her face is the way it is now. She had a lot of plastic that. surgery on her face because she yeah. got a really bad car accident. And so I don't know. That was after she was on. Were they Weinstein assassins? I don't know. I don't Weinstein follow assassins? her, but I remember thinking, like, why does she look so much different than she did in in Charmed and in you know Scream? I know she's older in the Grindhouse movies, but she like her nose is completely different because she had like reconstructive surgery yeah, from an accident that she had. So that's why she looks so much different. She Anyways. doesn't look awful, but she looks it, different. The no, nose she doesn't dips. look awful at all. Yeah. It does. It, 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 she, there's definitely a different shape to some of her features, but I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, whoever helps. Well, I, yeah, mean, I mean, if you get how bad was the car accident? Was it like uh, Paul Walker? Probably more like <laughs> Mark Hamill's. Oh, no, he he. Oh, he died. Yeah, I forgot Paul Walker died. I was like, I, I remember that happened. It was all over the radio and he was all over the dashboard and the steering wheel and the backseat. <laughs> That's my Paul Walker joke for the day. I am not editing this episode. I wanted to see Rose McGowan fight a wampa, but that was great. Oh, I think I'm done. I think for, I need right? more wine after that comment. <laughs> Anyway, dark episode, just like a dark movie. I know it is pretty dark. That's that's what we're going for. Yeah, dark. It's the humor. theme that's of really... tonight's episode. It yeah. went from 1994 is when he does the initial draft. He shops it for four years before he finally gets it somewhere. And he kind of, you, as you'll hear in the interview, talks about how it had various different forms, and it's, it's very interesting to see. And I, I'm grateful for what we have. This is not a movie that ever haunted me in terms of like, I wonder what would have happened if they did this. You know, so often you hear me talk about movies and you do production. Ghostbusters 2 is a great example. We just did that. Like movies that could have been in the stuff he talked about. I really haven't really considered anything else but the movie we have. Is there anything like glaring that you thought was problematic in the movie? No, no. I gotta wonder how it evolved though from 94 to 98. That's that's a drastic couple of years in the 90s. I feel like things changed. Very much so. So I wonder how it originally started out. I wonder what that original form was. But yeah, I can't complain about a thing in this. Yeah, I, I mean, in terms of tone, I mean, I could see them making it darker with that. But, you know, over time, I feel like it went through a lot of studio hands saying, oh, no, we got to change this. We got to change this. We got to change this. And then it eventually became what it did, you know. But I don't know. I, I Anything problematic in the film? I don't think so. I thought the the whole um, the whole thing where Courtney's like, oh, let, let's let's say she was raped. I'm like, oh, that's not going to fly today. You can't you can't put that in a comedy. Funny enough, because of the movement, she is spearheading. I think that that's actually what makes this powerful. I think it, it ages better. I think in terms of social media, I, a lot of these things, because we are trying and we are having people who are actively fighting and advocating for equality and transparency, that these things become way more, way darker and way more accurate and way like it's a much more cutting social commentary 
than I think it was at the time. Like I talk about in the interview, this foretells social media, this whole idea that Violet is a different person. You could get away with that shit on Instagram. You can get away with that with filters Mm -hmm. and all this shit. But at the end of the day, you're still fucking Fern. Yeah. I think that's why this movie felt so different now. It was time made this heavier. Well, and that also shows you what it was like back then, too, because Rose McGowan can save these things. And they do save some homophobic things in the film. But those Mm -hmm. were things that we would hear normally. Exactly. Right. That's just that's just what it was back then. Obviously, now we know that that's a problem, but this is a good way to look back and see how things were. Remember when the the principal goes in the bathroom and tells Courtney that, you know, she needs to put her sweater on because this is a high school, not a brothel. Right. I would never dream of saying that to any of my students because who fucking cares what they're wearing one and two, but that's how, you know, as for me growing up, dress code was such an issue. I remember I got got in trouble because I had fucking flip-flops, high heels on, but they were backless and I had to go to the office and either go to detention or go home because you know what I mean? Just stupid dress shit. codes were such bullshit back then. Like when I, when I was, when this movie came out, I decided to wear shorts to school one day before it was shorts approved weather. And I, it's like, I got sent home. Yeah. So it's, like, it's stupid. Wait, you're not getting sent home because you're being sexualized, Adam. So there's, have there's, you seen these legs? I don't know. I have not. I well, was we got using. the nuts set hanging out. He's like, go to the okay, teacher's yeah. office. If your balls were hanging out, I could see why. So, but anyways, you know, it's just, I, and I don't want to go through this slide by play. I will, I do want to go through just a quick blurb of what this movie is about. So if anybody listening has never seen it, three of the most popular girls at Reagan High School accidentally kill their best friend with a jawbreaker when a kidnapping goes horribly wrong. So they gag her with the, the jawbreaker kidnap her, throw her in the trunk. And when they go take her to breakfast and open the trunk, boom, they realize she's dead. And they actually go on about their day with her dead body in the trunk as if nothing happens. So how do we feel about this? Do we think that this is a good like way of like showing how, and Jakey mentioned it before, it is, they are being flippant about it, but this is how kids think, right? They're very central about themselves. Like they only think of themselves. Yeah, but what's crazy yeah. is there, I mean, the line that actually got under my skin is when they pull, first pull up to the school and they're like, okay, just act normal. Uh, you know, she's dead in the trunk. Well, let's just go throughout our day and just, I'm like, well, she's just gonna leave a dead corpse in your trunk. You know what I mean? Like, that's that's sociopath. Uh, she's bad. I, and I don't care what you say. Courtney's a bad girl. I was going to say something that, you know, it kind of borders on that, like that movie Dead Girl. <laughs> she's they've got this yeah. secret corpse, you yeah. know, doing fucked up things with. I know. Well, with the, and then his side, I love it when Marcy says, oh, maybe we could just put her back in bed and just like act like nothing happened. <laughs> but she's like, her body's already like blue and like all of these things coming out. They're carrying her up the stairs and they do when they dropped her, they actually really Poor dropped girl. her because she was too heavy for them. And they were in heels trying to go up the stairs. So they actually dropped her in real life. But um, like all of these things and they're trying to spread her legs and they're like, she's so and I'm like, oh my God, this is so, because when I'm a kid watching this, I'm laughing, like not thinking into it. Right. But then again, you said, think about it. They're playing children at that age. Do they get what they're really doing? It's important. It's, you know, it's presented like almost weekend at Bernie's. Right. But it's like a realistic version of that with the rigor mortis and everything, but they are not troubled by her. They don't give a shit about her. The horror is contextualized of what her dead body means to them. So it 
instantly becomes an object as soon as that camera hits the ground. It has no yes. personal value at all, except arguably to Gayhart. Yeah. And I couldn't pick up on that concept when that came out originally. My brain just didn't pick up on that. And I think that's why it's so dark now. Just them. They're yeah. monsters. But are they monsters? Because that's the human nature is to survive. And that's the thing. It's opportunistic. It's conniving. It's manipulative. But it, this is completely unremarkable to me in that regard. You know what I mean? Like mm. you have movies like this all the time, eight heads in a duffel bag or whatever. Th this idea is just, it's so hyper violent because here are, these are children. Children are supposed to do uh -huh. the right thing. Children are the idealistic ones. Right. And these people don't give a shit. And even at the end, yeah. there's no legal ramification. She's not going to jail. No, it's just a bad Polaroid. Yeah. All that's happening is that she's being outed and people are judging her. No judge judges her. She's never sent to jail. She's never publicly executed. She's never drawn and quartered. The cruelest thing that can happen to her is her perception of self. Because now like that's how egocentric all these characters are. It's fascinating. I really think that there is some stuff in here that I don't think people are going to give credit to even for another few years. It's deep. Yeah, and this one doesn't have a Blu-ray, I don't think, either. Just a DVD, Correct. right? Because I was going to say, yeah, this... Oh, the one on Pluto needed a restoration. You could see like little film breaks and everything like that. There, I'm like, man, this needs to get cleaned. I up. got the uh, copy off of Amazon. I got the digital, uh, the digital copy, and it looks pretty good. Yeah, I think it's HD mm. on Amazon. Yeah, right now, it's only so. like thirteen bucks. I paid eight. I don't know what she paid for. On where on Prime? Mm -hmm. That's weird. I paid good out these, but uh, I ended up spending <laughs> money from Olive Garden. <laughs> when did you buy it? <laughs> like last <laughs> weekend. When I, when I That's watched it. That's weird. I know. Huh. Now, it's funny you brought this up. I'm <clears throat> stepping a little bit back here. But when you guys said that uh, you dress code and stuff, the way they dress in this film, no one ever dressed like that at my school either. And I went to a Christian high school, so it was filled with prudes everywhere anyway. They thought a burlap sack was sexually offensive. <laughs> well, um, you, but you had a you uniform, I mean? right? I assume. There was no uniform. You had to dress. Uh, I call it Dobis. <laughs> so <laughs> doing business. I mean, Tim and Eric fans <laughs> out there. Obis. But uh, yeah, I never seen anything. And the thing is, it was so bad at our high school, too. Like if, if some girl wore, you know, God forbid, nail polish or lipstick or had their capris used to be a big thing in Ohio. Uh, that used to be a style for whatever reason. But if it went past your uh, your your ankle, you automatically get sent home. And uh, the reason is you are not allowed to be walking by any of the boys here. So it was it was so bad. It was just you know, what I mean, it's, it's like backwards there. So. You know, for them dressing like that, I'm like, hey, good for you. But I don't know what high school you went to for to dress like that. I also think that it's meant to prevent you from eliciting a sense of like paternity or like protection or caring. I, I largely anesthetized to people who are adults. Uh, but I, I, you know, I still find that I do care about kids and want them to not be murdered and maimed. But I think that's like a conscious yeah. choice. So you don't become sympathetic to your subject matter. I think they're purposefully designed to be really shitty and you're not supposed to go, oh, <laughs> yeah, because if someone who was like an 18 year old actress, actress playing that, it, yeah, it would have come off very differently. Yeah, imagine Chloe Day Moretz or whatever, and she's sitting there and she's like, oh, shit, what do I do? You're like, what are you going to do? You have college ahead of you. But with Rose McGowan, I'm like, you didn't go to college. You went to the school of hard knocks and Marilyn Manson's socks. Oh, my God. Anyway, I think there's no better time than talking about Marison, Marison Malson's footwear to go to our interview with one Darren St 
Stein, writer and director of this film. This is Slashers, at least the interview portion of the show. I'm still not entirely sure how to introduce. My name is Jake, and with me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, co-host, and cohort, Adrian, and my new best friend, Darren Stein. Say hello to the mutant goons from beyond. Hey, mutant goons. I love me some mutants. So I reached out to you on a whim, and you were amazingly responsive, which I appreciate because I gush over your film. My wife and I had many moons ago, we reviewed The Craft. And that's fine. But that was a movie I found later in life. Your film with the walking scene in the hallway. That is what I envision when I think of mean girls. Tell me everything there is to know about you, your filmmaking process. Oh, and by the way, is this a horror movie? Well, (laughs) in your research, I'm sure you guys have seen me talk about the fact that when I wrote this, I set out to write a horror movie. You know, I grew up as a kid reading Fangoria you know, what, obsessed with Rocky Horn, Alien, The Thing, you know, uh, Friday the 13th, so Shining, all that horror stuff I loved. And I wanted to write one. And then as soon as I began to write the dialogue, I realized it was becoming a Black comedy. It was yeah. less of a horror film. That being said, I think that the DNA of horror infuses the film and is in the film. And it's that darkness, I think, which makes it transcend, which makes it a cult movie. Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. and embraced by the horror community because it doesn't, flinch from the darkness. It doesn't make any bones about it. Both the macabre elements with the murder, but also sort of the viciousness of the girls. You know, I wanted it to sort of go for the jugular in both in both aspects. Yeah. And that darkness truly is what makes it, you know, humorous because you have this incredible transposition between, you know, what is a very, very morbid subject matter and this flippancy. I think that's the scariest part. I mean, this is like proto- a lot of school shootings and stuff. The just rampant disregard for human life that these girls have is haunting. <laughs> well, yeah, because I, you know, I grew up with like, you know, John Waters. You yeah. know, I was influenced by like Female Trouble and Desperate Living and all of his films. And there was a lawlessness to that that I really related to, you know. And so when I made this film, I really wanted it to be mercenary. Yeah. And I think even if you look at Carrie, Carrie does not pull punches either. The Brian, the Brian De Palma version. No. You know, and I think that's what was exciting. So I remember when they first showed me the, the post, there was a bunch of different poster ideas. The studio like showed me the, for the film. And of course, the one, the iconic poster is, is it is what it is. It's great. But when I first saw it, I was like, this is just so like candy. It's just so bright and colorful. And like, are you sure you're going to market it this way? <laughs> the movie is a lot darker than this. Yeah. You know, but the studio, you know, they want to get asses in seats. So they had to go that way, I guess. I think the hardest part about your film and probably even your filmmaking style is that people just kind of want to put you in a peg like this is this is all this is. This is not all this is this. And I'm not pandering because I don't I won't I wouldn't reach out to you if I didn't like your film. So if it sounds like I'm just being obnoxiously ignore it. But I love your film because it is not any one thing. And is it hard for you as a filmmaker to think that people will just try and use broadish brushes when it comes to a lot of your work, in fact? It doesn't bother me because I just think it's such a it's such a gift to be able to get to make movies. That's a good point. And to tell your stories. And, you know, I think the fact that this, that the film has stood the test of time to me is the answer. I mean, it's still, you know, it's still being discussed. And I think it's really cool in the last three or four or five years that the horror community's embraced it, yeah. you know, in, in a way that hasn't happened before. So I think that's exciting. I think that shows that the film is sort of ahead of its time in that, in the way it brought genres together. And now people are watching it and sort of embracing the darkness of it, you know, and I was used to it immediately. Like it got bad reviews. Like yeah. I was, when the film came out, 
I was sort of assaulted with negativity about it. So you have to have a tough, a tough skin, you know? But the, but the people who loved it found it, saw it in the theater and watched the MTV special and all that stuff. And to this day, they still love it. So it's like, I think the best films are polarizing. Yeah, mm-hmm. 100%. Like, you know, look at the Kubrick's The Shining. I know tons of people who hate that film. They're like, oh, it's a bastardization. And I have tons of people, myself included, who think it's better than the goddamn book. Sorry. I'm with you. Yeah. I think The Shining is much better than the book. And as a matter of fact, I'm not, I mean, generally, I don't love sequels because they, they just aren't as good, yeah. you know, except for a few. I mean, like, Aliens is great. You know, The New Shining, you know, I saw it in the theater. What was it called? Dr. Again? Sleep. Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw the theater. And I appreciated it for what it was, but you cannot touch The Shining. And anyone who tries to compare it to The Shining, I just feel like it's like, it's not a discussion that should have, should be had, you know? They were really clever in kind of making an amalgamation of the book mythos and the movie mythos. So you can kind of give it like a alternate universe pass, because if it, you just do a one-to-one comparison to Kubrick, you're going to leave disappointed. Kubrick's a visionary. Yeah. And even the woman who with the cowboy hat who plays that character, you know, I felt like I had seen all that done better in like near dark. Oh, you know, yeah. So, I, ah. so yeah. So I, I, I'm like a purist, I guess. And I don't do well with, you know, and I guess that's weird to say. Cause like I, there's a lot of people who think, you know, Jawbreaker wouldn't exist without Heather. So I get that as well. I mean, if I didn't make Jawbreaker, I'd probably be saying, Oh my God, how, how dare that someone make that when Heather's existed. Aid, I'm going to let you take some talking points because I, I okay. really could rapid fire at this point. <laughs> no, I know. I know you can. I just, I, I was just curious because I was reading a lot of things and you, you read things on the internet. A lot of things aren't true. And I was watching some interviews with you. So is this truly really based on people that you knew in high school? Like things that these girls have not. I went to an all, I went to an all boy, <laughs> all boys school uh-huh. from seventh, from seventh grade to 12th grade. And for it was like a, a academic and sports oriented school. And for a gay kid, that's kind of hell. Yeah. Because I was like flamboyant and like confident, love movies and love life. And these boys just did not know what to make of me, I guess. And so I think Jawbreaker was sort of my fantasy high school and my all the darkness I experienced of my adolescence as far as feeling other. I got to make a film with these like glamazons and this femme centric world and you know, a world, you know, of true darkness and evil. (laughs) So it was great to be able to like, you know, get to express all the emotion that I couldn't in, in, in those adolescent years. Let me ask you a question based on that. Is Fern kind of your avatar in that sense? Cause it's like almost being careful what you wish for. She like dreams of this scenario, kind of like you do with the school, but then it's truly not what you want. Yeah. I would say Fern's fully my avatar. Yeah. Because, and Courtney too. Courtney's sort of the bad side and Fern's the good side. Good one. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) You can can tell I kind of related least to like Julie. Um, (laughs) But uh, even though I love Rebecca Gayhart, you know, obviously. But like, yeah, I mean, wow. I've never heard someone say that to me before. So you are a really good podcast person because... Wait, tell me your first name again. I'm Jake. Okay, Jake. And wait, and you again are... Adrian. Adrian, I'm sorry, I'm so bad. Nick. It's totally okay. You're, okay. You're totally fine. We are not big time. <laughs> <laughs> Who cares? Yes, you are. You have a big, you have like close to 5,000 followers on Instagram. You're doing great. That's Get awesome there. for It's awesome for a slasher podcast or a horror podcast. Yeah, it's super niche, but also oversaturated. Yeah. No, it's great. I think it's awesome. So, Jake, yeah, that's a really kudos to you for pointing that out because no one's ever said that to me before. And it's the first time I'm realizing that. Probably, yeah, I am kind of Fern. And, and I know I never admitted that. I would never admit that because she's such a weirdo and other and everything. But the journey, it's funny because even 
you know, I'm developing this as a, as a limited series and a trans actress on Instagram messaged me and she said she always felt like Fern's transformation into Violet felt like wow the trans wow. journey. Because when you're a trans person, you want to be feminine and highly glamorous. Yeah. And then once you get that, you realize, oh, but I have to also be a good person and do the inner, the inner work, you know? Yeah. So, and so I'm not trans, but I'm definitely queer. So I think there's a correlation there for sure. And her sexual orientation, I think, is very interesting in the film because it is heavily implied that she's at least bi-curious if you want to be labeling. Is that something that's been hard for you to see people kind of add a narrative to when I think if I'm reading correctly, it's supposed to be ambiguous, right? Yes, it's supposed to be ambiguous, but it's not that ambiguous because she kind of like, first of all, she's like counting. She's looking at the beauty marks on her back in class, Yeah, sitting behind her. Talking about how her her hair smells like apples. That's like one of the reasons I think this is horror because she's overly obsessed with this with Liz, right? Yeah, no, the obsession it's it's sort of an unhealthy obsession for sure because it's not just it's sexual, it's identity based, but it's also like that that magic of school when we sit behind someone in class and and you do smell their hair and it does smell like apples and you know you can never have them but you are right behind them and you do get to go home and obsess about them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so hard. <laughs> well, the silence of the lambs, right? You know, what do we covet? That which we see every day. And that's what she has, exact person that she's been able to imprint upon. And the circumstances, you know, whether they be convenient or the will of the cosmos of you as the writer, it's very interesting to see. Like, imagine if Courtney's the one dies via jawbreaker. This whole movie's entirely different because Fern's never triggered essentially. Yeah. And it's funny also that Liz is never really given much of a identity, you know, aside from like this iconic hallway walk. And then, yeah. when she, and then when she rises out of the water as this kind of Phoenix, but you'd be surprised people find that scene in the movie to be very emotional and very melancholy and sad Yeah, you know, because, because we all imprint, like you said, on people and to see the, the vision coming of the girl coming up and knowing she's dead and the mom, and it is meant to be emotionally triggering, which is great. You know? I know, I teared up a little bit. Was it hard for you as a young filmmaker not to explain fucking everything? Because I feel like so many young filmmakers, they need to have every single word of their script on the screen and they need to have every single thing justified. And the fact that you leave her so undefined is so interesting to me because it lets that interplay of Courtney changing her narrative and Fern almost changing her. Everybody kind of has that motivation after she dies. Was that hard for you or was it just kind of what you always envisioned? It wasn't hard because the script went through many drafts. Yeah. And in, er in earlier drafts that were more horror-centric, Liz came back as a ghost. Ooh. Yeah, and she sort of haunted Fern, and she haunted Courtney, all the girls. And the end of the film was not a prom. It was like this big house party. It was very Elm Street, too. Like yeah. Cool. Uh <laughs> <laughs> now I'm talking your language. Um, <laughs> so there was like this pool, and Liz's body like starts floating over the pool. And she's like luring the girls in. So I don't, I'm trying to figure out what it was exactly, but basically what she ends up doing is Fern comes into the pool and she and, and then Liz strangles her underwater. And yeah. Her. Oh, wow. I love uh, that. It was crazy. It was crazy. Maybe we do that for the musical series. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's, I think there's going to be an apparate, a, a ghost in the musical for sure. Yeah. We'll lean into the horror, the horror a little bit more. That's awesome. Now, yeah. you had already referenced a few films that I absolutely love. Getting into that kind of spooky specter thing, a little bit of an American werewolf in London there with the haunting of the friend. Mm -hmm. 
There could be a little bit of that. Yeah, that, that's a film that was definitely imprinted on me at, at an early age, for sure. But the main influences, I think, are like, obviously, Heathers. But then there's Carrie. Yeah. Rock and Roll High School is a big one. The John Waters movies. Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill. Grease? Oh, yeah, Grease. How can I forget Grease? Grease is a big one. Yep. So what was it like having Jeff Conway, PJ Souls, and William Katz in your film? That had to be fucking thrilling. How old were you when you made 24? I was like 20... When I actually shot it, I think I was like 26, 27. Oh, wow. I mean, now I'm 40, I'm 49. So you guys do the math. Because <laughs> we shot that in 97, 98. Now I'd say 90, yeah, 97, 98, around there. So 71, 81, 91. So I was like 26, 27. Yeah. Jeff Conway was great. He told me a really funny story about Stockard Channing. Do you want to hear it? Oh, please. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, they, were, <laughs> they were rehearsing Greece, I guess. And they were in the car making out. Ooh. And he, she was on her back, I guess, in the front seat and saw that he had taped all these girls' pictures under the dashboard. <laughs> and she's like, Conaway, what's up with that? You know, why did you put all those, those women under there? I'm not good enough for you or whatever. But I guess she was. And like, he needed quote unquote inspiration during that scene. Oh, <laughs> oh he's awful. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? I'm sorry. It's just fun. It's fun to hear these stories though, you know? <laughs> I mean, we love soccer, but but Rizzo, Rizzo, I think I was fascinated by because she was very other. Yeah. She was kind of like, you know, not beautiful, kind of weird looking, kind of like sassy, kind of drag queen-ish. You know, there's something like divine-esque about her. Yeah. And I think that was a lot of fun and a lot of like, for a queer kid especially, it was very fascinating. He's played almost kind of effeminately in this role as a single dad. I thought that was very interesting for the time because... 99, we still have people throwing the F and the all the bad words around. This was very, I mean, kind of uncharted territory in a lot of ways. Well, no, I never thought that Marcy's dad was gay. I just thought he was like divorced or something. Yeah. But he's, he played it how he played it. You know, he played it a little bit like he's kind of cuckled, cuckolded by his daughter. Yeah. yeah. You know? <laughs> that's for, sure. That's for, for sure. sure. The muscle. But that's one of the stronger scenes in the, in the film too. It's such a good, good little side story with Marcy because we don't get a lot with Marcy. She's just this vapid follower, but then you kind of see her background and that father doesn't want that from her. So I feel like that's a good little part for Marcy to play. Yeah. Because I always feel like she's in, it's kind of like Fern in a way, like she's kind of not, and not even Fern because Fern's pushed to the front. So Marcy's pushed to the back, even though, you know, she's only around because Courtney's, you know, needs a little lackey. So there's always a lackey. Yeah. I'm sorry to throw shade your way, Adrian, but she's also the anti-Rob Zombie Michael Myers, where that kid has every fucking excuse to be an asshole. But what I love about this character is she has a nurturing father figure. She has everything, but she doesn't want it and she disregards it. And she's still like a vapid piece of shit in direct contrast to that. Was that fun to explore as a young filmmaker? It was because I think a lot of teenagers disrespect their parents actively. And we don't get to see that on screen all the time, you know, yeah. presented in kind of a harsh way or whatever but like dad don't be a dick it's kind of a dick thing to say to your dad yeah. a lot of a lot of dads would just slap the kid across the face if that was said at a table i would still so, be grounded now if i said that back in high school exactly and that's why i love marcy because she's such a because marcy's a badass and also at home she has the power you know with courtney she couldn't say that to courtney but she can say it to her dad and projection's huge when you're a kid like that right yeah you get yeah, the totally. shaft from your teacher you go home you kick the dog and then the, the, all these things is there any other kind of direct comparison to what you experienced in high school and what these characters either manifest or how they address things that do come to them? The kidnapping was inspired by my friend's sister. You really? know, she, yeah, like she went to public school in 
Valley in Encino called Birmingham. And she, I would cast her in all my movies when I made little films growing up. Yeah. I actually did a, I actually did what I want a stranger calls remake and she played the Carol Kane character. Oh, hell yeah. But she w- talked about how she and her friends would kidnap each other on their birthdays. And that's when I remember thinking, Oh, that would be really cool in the movie. Also, I would go over to the house to play with Brian and I'd end up in Michelle's room dancing around the cats in Evita, you know? Yes. <laughs> so, as a, so as a gay kid, like I always like ended up in the girls' room and I wanted to do what the girls did. And like girls kidnapping each other sounded really fun. And then, and then I was like, oh, well, what if one of them had killed their friend? And that's, that's where the premise came from. And that allure and intrigue of like what they're doing is terrifying when you think about it. And you're this close mm-hmm. from danger. What I love is just how innocuous this whole series of events is. Let's say she just goes and gets an everlasting gobstopper that's one-fourth the size. There's no movie here. Is that something that you explored in your in your life of thinking like everything is kind of terrifying? Yeah, that was the whole premise of the film. Because I think I had read an article about horror and it was like what it said that horror was when something in real life, in everyday, normal, mundane life goes wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And suddenly it's horror, horrific. And so I was like, oh, well, what if these, these girls and they kidnap their friend and they accidentally kill her? That sounds like a cool premise for a horror movie. And that's where it came from is, and then I was like, how do they kill her? Oh, a jawbreaker. Because, you know, I remember seeing Pulp Fiction and they had the ball gag. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, what's a teenage girl's going to do? What's, what's their sort of version of that? And I thought a jawbreaker. And I was like, oh yeah. And it's made out of sugar. So it can melt in her mouth, it can suck in her throat. And then all of that, it sort of spun from there, right? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. And that's, and that's terrifying too. When they open the trunk, like that's out of a horror movie. Yeah. Her face, the fact that it's protruding out of her throat. And I remember thinking like, you know, cause I knew what was going to happen when I sat yeah. and watched the movie, but I like, I, when I first watched it as a kid, I was like, oh my God, like, and they pull the, the tape back and it's just like her eyes. Oh my gosh. So. Yeah. One thing I heard from people was like, oh, I saw that movie when I was too young. Oh, that movie scarred me for life. And that's like the biggest compliment I yes, can get. That is awesome. Because <laughs> we all have those. We all have those things we saw too young. Right. And that's a rite of passage, for especially for a horror lover. And oftentimes somebody who ends up loving horror, it begins with something traumatic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Sure. And then we, so for me, it was The Manitou. Remember I saw the movie The Manitou? Yeah. Like it was like this exorcist ripoff in the eighties. My parents dropped me off at a double feature of Close Encounters and the and the Manitou. Well, they didn't realize that in the Manitou, this ancient American Indian demon like burst out of this woman's this woman's back. It's like super gory and like traumatic. I just had images of like all the blood and gore in that movie. You know? Hell yeah! And then I got really into it. it. This is the dwarf creature that I'm looking at on Google and is going to haunt my nightmares forever. <laughs> Yeah, watch the Manitou. That could be a future episode for you. Oh, I, this is absolutely <laughs> happening. Oh my god! <laughs> yes, no, it's bad. I mean, it's trashy. It's trashy. It's not like you know. That's well, the yeah, best. but that's the whole point. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Is it hard for you? Because it sounds like you were kind of almost reluctant to get to the point of the climax being at the prom. Because I think there's a pretty overt comparison to carry there. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think that this is mar- marvelously effective because it's the exact antithesis to that. Was it fun to kind of lean in and just be like, okay, this is what you're organically expecting. And I'm going to just shift it as hard as I can to the left. Yeah, I think I was like um, intimidated by Carrie because De Palma's prom scene is the prom scene to end all prom scenes. I mean, yeah. that's like opera. That's like high operatic. That is art. That is gal- you know, giallo meets opera meets, I don't know, psycho, you know, psychedelic clusterfuck, like split screens. <laughs> With split screens... <laughs> Fire and pig's blood. How can you compare to that? You just cannot. You know, and Betty Buckley getting like decapitated. <laughs> the yeah. whole thing is just incredible. 
Well, it's one of those things where if you describe what happens, it almost sounds silly and cute. But the way he delivers it is what makes it really impactful. And kind of the same thing with yours, where if you describe, hey, he jerry rigs a car to or a card rather to say something sassy. And then the whole thing sounds quaint, but it's delivered impactfully. Yeah, that happened because my boyfriend at the time, he had a car that his mom had given him for Christmas. And somehow her voice was still recorded. A new voice. It was one of those cards that records your voice. Yeah. yeah. But the original message had gotten erased and a new message was on the card. And the message was his mother saying, it was a lovely, and she was Scottish. So when the Scottish brogue, it was a lovely Christmas, Tommy. Aww. So you open the card and be like, it was a lovely Christmas, Tommy. And it was like this kind of melancholy, strange, weird thing to have your mom's voice permanently like on this card, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when it came time for the prom, I'm like, oh, what if it's one of those like cards and it accidentally records someone's voice? Because it, it can happen and it yeah. did happen and I've seen it happen. So that became the thing. And then I remember, and it would be like the grandeur of prom, you know, winning prom queen and then being outed in front of all your peers and doing that walk of shame, I thought could be really, you know, it, it could be De Palma-esque, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, like yeah. with Carrie getting the blood on her, that's that's her shame, right? So I saw the, the, I guess yeah. the parallels to that. Yeah, I guess for me, I'm, I'm I'm such a fan of cinema and I'm such a De Palma fan yeah. that I know personally that I can't do it better than him and that makes me angry, you know? But... <laughs> But but not angry, but like, you know, you can't, there's just apples and they're just two different films. Yeah. Well, if you did it in that vein, it would be completely absent from the rest of the movie. It would be like this like weird Frankensteinian kind of thing. Now, what I love, because I'm a bar licensed attorney and an asshole. So I always look at legal stuff in movies and I'm like, oh, nay, nay. What I love is the way you end the movie. She is killed and her crucible is the court of public opinion because that to her is worse than prison. I think it was that deliberate to have like no scene of her like shuffling off in shackles. Totally. Because yes. who cares about prison? This is not about like the government, justice, prison, you know, her getting her comeuppance. It's about, you know, the people have spoken you know, in this world. High school is is the final world, final word. You know, so the movie's about the crucible of high school and how the lengths that will go to belong, you know, become popular. And 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 as you know, when you're a teenager, the stakes are life and death. Oh yeah. Because I wanted that, I just wanted to take the film to that, you know, the girls wear vintage purses, they have seams at their stockings. There's a film noir vibe to the movie, a fetish vibe. It's completely meant to be forbidden. Yeah. And I think that one of the things you talked on earlier was the trans element. What I actually think about this movie, it ages so well because of social media. The creation of Violet is almost this, you know, facade that people create online. Look at my glamorous life. Look at all my beautiful selfies and my caviar. Uh, do you think that element is something if in this, you know, proposed musical uh, sequential series you'd want to explore a little bit more? Yeah, no, for sure. Obviously now, if it was modern day, they'd make her like Instagram. Yeah. I mean, Violet would be like a new Instagram presence, especially if he was Vern before, a boy before. So it's a new female at school who's hot. And everyone wants to know who she is. You know, I'm torn because part of me wants to keep it, you know, I would still want it to be timeless. Yeah. You know, do not, I mean, the beauty about Jawbreaker, I think is, yeah, it has its 90s moments, but it's ultimately the purpose of the whole thing was sort of to transcend time. Yeah. You know, both in the, in the design elements and in the costume design and in the language, like, you know, there's like one cell phone in the film. There's no, it's not really any computers. You know, I, don't, I didn't really want it to be married to the present, which is why it's so hyper real. You know, yeah. I want to find a way to do that with the series. 
And I mean, some of the language that you choose is almost Shakespearean in its complexity, which I think is really interesting. But I have to ask you, how much do you hate American Pie and can't hardly wait? Because I think that's the square hole that people are trying to put your round peg into when those things are just completely just different universes. I don't hate them because they are like brothers and sisters, I guess, because they all came out during the same decade or whatever. Yeah. They're just different beasts, you know? They're conventional teen, commercial teen movies. This was never meant to be that. Yeah. This movie was made by the home video division of a studio. It wasn't even made by the studio proper. It premiered at Sundance. It was released on 800 screens as opposed to 2,000 screens. It didn't have the marketing budgets of those films. So the mere fact that it got made is really sort of like a miracle and exciting in itself, you know? So I just, I don't really compare it to the other films, honestly. I mean, I remember I... My first feature had Freddie Prince Jr. in it. It's called it's called Sparkler. Sparkler. I'll send I'll, I'll send you guys a link to after we're done. I'll send you guys a link. I'll put you know I'll I'll email to you later. So you guys should see it. Absolutely. But yeah. I know Freddie, I was looking for it. I can't find it anymore. You can't Sorry. find it on streaming, but I'll send no. you a link. Okay. I'm, I'm getting I'm gonna get I'm getting it up on streaming soon. I just Perfect. had a two K a two K transfer. But Freddie Prince Jr. and Jimmy Kennedy are in it. And I remember running into Freddie Prince at a party years later after we made Sparkler when she's Jawbreaker and she's all that were about to come out at the same time. Timetable matches up, yeah. And I remember we, I was like, we both made these new movies and mine's going to be better. And he's like, no, mine's going to be better. And I was like, no, mine's going to be, I think I'm pretty sure mine's going to be better. But <laughs> it was just kind of like, you know, yeah. a, a showing your dick contest kind of thing, the size of your dick contest. It was dumb. It was stupid. But and it was, you know, and there are apples and oranges. Anyway, sorry, that, that's, a, that's a weird story. No, it's a great story because I think it shows that, like, you can be in the same area, but you're not in direct competition. This sense of competition is almost a joke to you. But I think a lot of people looked at your movie as a comparison, which is unfair to it at that time. And that's one of the things the further removed you get from 1999, the less those comparisons are. And I think the more accessible it becomes. Well, Rachel Lee Cook auditioned for Jawbreaker. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She almost played the Rebecca Gay- Gayhart role. And then when we got them all together in that scene, you know, we, when, when Rachel ran with Rebecca and I'm sorry, with Julie and Rose, became apparent wasn't right for the tone of the film. Yeah. You know, whereas Gayhart was because she clearly isn't in high school. She's big. There's something larger than life about her to begin with. She's the Noxima girl, right? Yeah. And she's so beautiful. She is. Yeah. But, you know, she's all that. To this day, I haven't seen it, so I can't even tell you oh if it's better or worse. Oh, it's worse. It's a lot worse. You don't take a pretty girl and put glasses on her and be like, she's a hideous monster. People yeah. love it. People love it, though. Ugh. So it's like, you know, like like, 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 like recently, I'm sorry, go ahead. What were you saying? Oh, no, there's just no comparison, honestly, because I never considered, even though they all came out at the same time, I don't ever remember putting Jawbreaker in that category. Yeah. You're a horror, but you're a horror girl. So you, a have a dark, you, you have a darker sensibility. But like, for, <laughs> but for example, recently there was a 90s night at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, and, which it. was a great, it was exciting for me to have my film show there because it's a massive venue. It's this massive cemetery in Hollywood. I guess they do a 90s night sometimes. It was No, they do this thing called The Sleepover where they show three films. And two years ago, it was, fuck, what was the one with Drew Barrymore? Oh, Never Been Kissed. Uh, I Know What You Did Last Summer and Jawbreaker. Wow. Those are the three movies. <laughs> That's a hell so, of a combo. Yeah. So Never Been Kissed went first. And then I Know You Did Last Summer was second. And mine was third. So mine didn't come on till like two in the morning. But it was great because people were still there and loving it and getting oh, into yeah. it. And it's kind of cool for yours to go last because it's the cultiest of the three. So that, that, I, thought that was, I thought that was neat. The most grindhousey. No. In terms of like that kind of era, Cruel Intentions is the one I think is kind of the similar, but that movie 
makes me cringe so much. Like, I just wish someone would die so I could be relieved of this tension. Uh, is there anything that maybe might be adjacent that you would compare your film to that maybe us as the layman might not, you know, think about? Huh. I would say probably like Welcome to the Dollhouse or like Ghost World. Oh, Ghost World. Or like, um, I guess I get, I've heard it compared to uh, But I'm a Cheerleader, the Natasha Leone film. Never heard of that. I'm Googling it. It's called But I'm a Cheerleader. She plays a lesbian. It's about lesbianism. It's very campy. RuPaul was in it. You should watch oh, it. Oh, I've seen that, I think. I want to say yeah. I've seen this one. I'm looking yeah. pictures. It's actually got Melanie Linsky, who was in Heavenly Creatures. Hell yeah. Oh, yeah. It's got a, Yeah, it's fun. The Claire Duvall, yeah. Yeah, Clea's in it. It's oh super fun. Oh, my gosh. I love it. Yeah, that. you guys should watch it. It's a, it's a good... My friend Jamie directed it, and she's a big TV director now. She does oh. a lot of TV. Holy shit. How have I not even heard of this? This looks amazing. I know. Have you guys heard of heard of the film All About Evil with Natasha Leone? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I actually produced that. Really? really? Yeah, so I, I have produced a straight up, straight up horror comedy called All About Evil. It's got Natasha, Noah Segan, Thomas Decker, and it's got Elvira, isn't it? And Cassandra Peterson, and Mink Stoll from the John Waters movies. That's not streaming. I mean, jo- I know that's hard to find as well, but it's going to be streaming soon, I think, on Shutter. Hell yeah. Oh, okay. Eventually, yeah. Open invitation when these things start to flourish in the streaming yeah, realm. I'll send, I'll you, send Joshua, the, the writer director, is, is a drag queen called Peaches Christ. Yes, I'm looking at the image right now. Yeah. And I'll, I'll send him your way. You'll have to interview him about All About Evil when it comes oh out. I love it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I love that. Adrian, is there anything you want to close off with? I, I bogarted this interview. I'm, I'm so enamored. I'm sorry. It's yeah, okay. Adrian, if you, I know you have questions that didn't get asked. You should ask them. No, I just, I, I just didn't want to ask you anything that you haven't already like told everybody. So I spent most of my day looking at different interviews and just trying to stay away from those questions. But I think that this was such a, such a great film of the time. And I, I honestly feel that it is one of, and I've already said this before, but it's one of my movies that I'll always remember as a kid that was so different from everything else, because I just loved these characters so much. And I watched GBF today. And I just was dying. And I, I, I mean, how is it working with Megan Mullally? Like, what is, I, I just have to ask you. because She's great. She's like, <laughs> she's so brilliant. She's hilarious, genuine, kind person. And her improv skills are stupid. Like, she's next level genius. Uh, yeah, it was, it was great. It was great to work with her. Oh, such a, that, that's a great, I don't, you didn't write it, correct? No, I only okay. directed that one, but yeah, I, I directed and produced it. But I definitely did some work on the script. I developed it. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I loved it. I loved it so much. So yeah, I mean, I'm really excited to see Sparkler now because I really wanted to see that one. Sparkler is something you guys will enjoy. And then you guys should check out, put the camera on me, which is a documentary that I made. Documentary, yeah. It used to be streaming on Amazon Prime and now you have to rent it. Fucking Jeff Bezos. How big does your yacht have to be? God damn it. (laughs) True. No, as long as I can get it streaming, that's fine. But I was a little just, GBF is on Prime right now too, Jake. FYI. Yeah, i Trust me, I have my watch list set for the next three days. Just Thank saying. you very much. <laughs> oh, GB, oh, GBF available streaming on Prime? Yeah, well, oh, it, cool. has, it has ads on it. Oh, cool. Which is something new they're doing, I think, because I've okay. never seen that before, but I, I don't mind. Like you know, Voodoo like and Tubi and stuff, yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah totally. <clears throat> What's great about that is it makes it accessible to people who wouldn't want to like go behind a paywall. I mean, they'll sacrifice a couple extra minutes of their time for ads for it. Now, one thing I really noticed with GBF was the branding the hyper color in direct contrast with Jawbreaker, I think is very interesting. Were you involved in the kind of 
I guess, aesthetic choices in that regard? Yeah, I directed it. Well, I yeah. mean, like in terms of like the marketing as well, because like, oh yeah, if yeah. you look at the posters, I mean, they have like this kind of, and I mean this in a polite way, this yeah, garish, yeah. like almost unnerving color so that you're focusing on people. Yeah. Well, the poster was inspired by the, the, the poster for Guys and Dolls. If you look up the Guys and Dolls poster, there's four of them kind of walking towards the camera. Gotcha. And I really, I really like that as an inspiration. Also, you know, it's about, the movie's about like the gay kid who was obsessed with the, with the popular girls. And he wanted to be part of that slow motion walk that he saw in Jawbreaker. And what I liked about the GBF script is that it was such a great satire about that character and wanting to, you know, be treated as a person, not just as like a commodity, like yeah. as the GBF. And so I just thought that the, the four of them walking together in slow motion was such a great iconic sort of image for that poster with the boy being part of that, you know, iconic sort of like formation. Yeah, and it totally reminded me of Jawbreaker when I saw it too, and and I was like, oh, so that was that was me today. I should have been working, yeah. and I wasn't. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, we've kept you longer than we said we would. I really appreciate your time. Now, in terms of following your social medias and your upcoming projects, we did want to talk about the Jawbreaker vinyl that's coming out. Can you shed a little bit of light on that? Yeah, it's coming out through Mondo, which is a really cool company that releases a lot of cult movie and soundtracks and posters. They're putting out a beautiful vinyl record, which is going to have some really awesome new artwork. I think they're going to do a poster as well. The album opens up and in the middle, you'll see like three screaming images of Rose McGowan that are like illustrated. They're incredible. Yes. It was supposed to come out in July. I think it's being pushed back a little bit, but it should be later this year at some point. That vinyl will be coming out. And it's got a a song that's not on the soundtrack, not on the original soundtrack. Ooh. Yeah. I'm titillated. Exciting. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, we weren't recording when I talked about the mind parasites of this soundtrack and how it burrows into my consciousness for months after I watch your yeah, film. Yeah. So I have to say that on the record now so people will know that they're similarly suffering because this is one of the most iconic soundtracks of the time. We're like, holy shit, this is a time machine. Yeah. And the movie is like pure, like 90s, you know, 90s alt alternative music, you know, and it's like a lot of it's female, female driven. So I think it's a really special soundtrack also that stands out for that, you know, and for, and for the aggro kind of like alternative nature of it. You know, it's not like every other soundtrack. And you had the Donnas in the goddamn movie. That was cool. Given a platform to young ladies. Well, the Donnas, I was a fan of theirs. I saw like an article about them in the LA Weekly. And in the article, there's a picture of them on the album wearing like the shirts that say like Donna H, Donna Z, you know, their last names. Yeah. And I, I thought it was just a really cool reference to Heather's to have the girls playing and they're all named Donna. So to me, that was a Heather's kind of like reference, homage. And then I liked the idea of sort of a rock and roll high school, you know, because I discovered the Ramones in that movie and I love, to this day, exactly. I love the Ramones. Oh yeah. It was like having my own version of the Ramones, you know, a female, a female version of the Ramones. Yeah. Have you read Marky Ramone's book, by the way? Completely tangential, but it's delightful. No, but, I, but what I am reading now is Joey Ramone's brother's book called I Slept With Joey Ramone. It's really great. Pete Davidson's going to be playing him in something. And I think that's going to be yeah. fascinating. He's playing him in that it's based on this book I'm reading. A perfect. It's called, wow. yeah, yeah, it's called I Slept With Joey Ramone. So I must say the person who should have played Joey is, what's the guy's name from the Star Wars movies and girls? It's Adam Driver. I thought Adam Driver was oh, Joey. Oh, yeah. Aesthetically, oh, for sure. I could see that. Yeah. yeah. I think his mannerisms with Davidson, this is what I said in defense of him, because I'm not a big Pete Davidson guy, but as a guy who's been as outspoken as he has about mental illness, I think that's a really interesting perspective because Joey Ramone was a tortured fucking soul to a point where it's uncomfortable. That's one of the reasons I like I like Marky's book is because he talks about it, but he doesn't like make you feel like you're a bad person. You should weep, which is so nice. <laughs> yeah, he was tortured, but he was human and he was sent. There's a sensitivity to him. Yeah. 
that was beautiful. And as a front man, I like that he was a mon- there's something monstrous about him. And I say that in a positive way. Yeah. There, there's an otherness to him, like there's an otherness to Rizzo or Divine and or, or Frankenfurter. And I love those characters, you know, that are so kind of terrifying just for what they are, but also kind of like, you know, you get into them because they're just so different, you know? Hell yeah, this gawky seven foot tall guy covered in hair and the most effeminate jeans I've ever seen. I see it. Yeah, he's got those hips and he's got, he always wears those glasses and you can't see his eyes. There's something like, you know, Bobby and Dressed to Kill to him, right? So I'm here for it. Or Cousin It as well. Yeah, that too. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know if you get more other than that. Now, uh, no, in no. terms of social media profiles that we can plug, would you like to? Yeah, my, Insta- my Instagram is just my name, at Darren Stein. And my Twitter is the same, at Darren Stein. Nice. That's rarefied air to actually just be able to have your name. Kudos to you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I want to mention a reality show called Dragula. I don't know if you guys have heard of Dragula. It's sort of like Fear Factor meets RuPaul's Drag Race. Yeah. It's, by the, it's, it's called the Boulay Brothers Dragula. It's, it's on, on Netflix, sh- right? Well, the seasons two and three are on Netflix. Okay. Dragula Resurrection is sort of an all-stars kind of thing. It's on Shudder. Well, Shudder has now bought all of Dra- the Dragula brand. So, season, so seasons one, two, and three will be on Shudder, and Shudder is now producing season four of Dragula. Now, the reason why I'm promoting it is because I've been a guest judge on all three episodes, all three seasons of Dragula. Yes. I'm in episode one of season one, which you can watch on YouTube. Episode, I think, six, no, episode six of season two and episode four of season three. But there's a lot of horror icons that are especially on season three of Dragula. And I think I'm going to become a producer probably on season four of Dragula. I love that. And, And probably a guest judge as well. So I just want to have I don't know what your community's like. I mean, it's a horror community, but and I know that Dragula, a lot of the you know the queer and the drag loving community knows about it. But it's now a horror. It's it's now a Shutter show, and so I think you guys should definitely it should be on your radar. If I may, when my wife and I were first dating, she almost completely just gave up on me as a lost cause because I had told everybody that I was going to spend an entire day where I only communicated in RuPaul's Drag Race gifts, and she did not know about it. So she was texting me and I was only responding with these gifts and she was legitimately like, who the fuck are you? Why are you like this? Uh, so I'm a big fan of all things drag and drag adjacent. Oh, then, but then as a drag lover and a horror lover, get it, just start with season one, get watch it on YouTube or if you, or you can start with season two or three. It's a lot of fun. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. That's yeah. Exciting. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. Adrian say you you end it thank you so much for joining us today and I'm like I'm so I, that's why I haven't said it very much I'm like totally excited about this so thank you very much for coming on no I said hopefully we get to speak to you in the future especially after for sure you know, after the musical and everything comes out so that'd be great yeah I have a, some uh, several projects I'm working on I want to thank you guys because you know Jawbreaker is sort of like the weird middle child between Heathers and Mean Girls and so many people don't like it. Somebody love it. But when, when people truly embrace it, you know, I have to be, support that because I think it's, it's like my, it's like my baby. So that's, that's, that's awesome. Hell yeah. And I think that's one of the things going back to, is it a horror movie or not? It's all your manner of perception. You know, this movie doesn't have to have a kill count of 50,000 to be horrific. And I think that it's the experience throughout. I think that's, I mean, truly uh, an accomplishment as a young filmmaker to be able to put somebody through an emotional turmoil like that and still have you like leaving the theater smiling while also being horrified is awesome. Well, in many ways, just that image of Liz with the jawbreaker in her throat is more horrifying than what you see in a lot of horror films. Oh, yeah. So, you know, it's like horror can be many things. Oh, I'm going to end this conversation right there because that was beautiful. And we're back. 
from our interview. Doug, Adam, you loved it, right? What was your favorite part? That thing you said, man, that was great. Worked on it real hard. Adrian, I think you're on the fence here, but I feel I'd be remiss if I didn't ask. Do you think this is a classic, a trashic, or a tragic? I think it's a classic for sure. Adam? I'm going total cult classic, yeah. I got to go with classic as well, too. But it's, it's it's one of those classics that you wouldn't expect. Like, if it wasn't for you guys, I would have never watched this film. So uh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a trashic as well. Or a classic rather than a trashic. I, I think that the, you would look at it and you would say, oh, at best be trashic. But I think there's, it's truly a good film. And I think that it, it's way more sophisticated than people gave it credit for. Even I did. I've watched this movie probably seven or eight times. And every time I'm like, oh, it's not even just that it holds up. I feel like each time I'm like, yeah, that's, that's actually gotten better. now. Adam and Doug, I already spoiled it. I'm on team horror movie. I think this is. Do you guys agree? Is this a horror movie? Well, uh, you know, what? I will say it, it does. Um, yeah, I'd say it's definitely a horror movie, because if you think about it in real life, like what would you do if, you know, you're in a group of friends and you you accidentally kill one of yours? Like, just imagine, like, obviously, these characters weren't afraid of it because they're more worried about their figure. But imagine in real life i'm like what the fuck are we gonna do it kind of reminded me like a um a more comic comedic version of there was a movie on shutter i forget what it was called i'll think of the name eventually but it has like three kids and they they're they're fighting and then they end up grabbing their brother's sword and then killing the brother super dark times yeah thank you it's basically this but just much darker so you know just throw a nice coat of paint on there throwing julie ben's uh saying her her one-liners and you know you got jawbreaker so it's total it's a it's a horror movie adam yeah, watching it this time, it was exponentially darker than I remember. So I'm I'm going to put it in that category and just thank you again for picking this one. Super awesome choice. I'm really glad to revisit this. Everyone go out and watch this because it's 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 a gift that keeps on giving. Like Jake said, you notice more and more the more you watch it. It's it's a classic hands down. All right. So let's give a tease for what's coming up next week. Doug, I understand that you have a movie that you think may be a horror movie. I think so, too. At least it'll live live on in our nightmares. And for those of you who have seen it, they even made yeah. a Nintendo game for it back in the day. But yeah, it's toys with Robin Williams. So if you thought uh, the demonic toys were scary, this thing got shit on you. You better clean your toilet bowls because there's going to be some fresh shit coming out. So that'll be our film for next week. Now, let's say we can't wait until next week. We need more Doug in and around our mouth and orifices. Where could they find that? Go and get a Roku and download B-Movie TV. It's a free channel where uh, it's 24-7 streaming and they have each individual hosted shows on weekends. So, for example, uh, Jake just got his new show. He's, his second episode is Saturday Night Terrors at 10 p.m. on B-Movie TV. And I'm on Friday Night Action at 8 p.m. So if you like cars exploding and people running around on fire, uh, that's not just L.A. traffic. No, that's the action films on Friday Night Action. Those times are local, but Roku's are incredibly, if not dangerously and haphazardly easy to hack. You just say you're in a different time zone and it works without question. I did it. I went to a world that I didn't even know existed. Some land that started with a Q and ended with a xylophone. (laughs) You're in those Russian red rooms again. And um, Adam, you draw stuff that people smear on their tits. What's that about? I, uh, I like drawing you goons lots of t-shirts. And uh, we got some new designs coming out this week. So stay tuned. But uh, right now you can check out our link tree. Link tree slash slashers pod. And also currently slasherspod.redbubble.com. We've got a lot of designs over there. And now uh, more being added. Also, you can check me out on Instagram for those designs at otherboy underscore art. There's the shameless plug I know and love. <laughs> 
And you can just find me on Instagram at path- <laughs> pathologically, A-D-E. Like to share fun memes. Yay. That's me. She's the meme lord. <laughs> Slaying them out like a machine gun. She's the meme dealer. Well, no, I mean, Jake makes them and I just share them. So there you go. I made a great one. for. Oh, I'm going to plug this, fuckers. I have a new Instagram about my love of dinosaurs. It's the Ayatollah of Stiggy Moloch. And it's fucking great because I make the dumbest things ever. And I made one today, which was Coelophysis, which is a cannibalistic dinosaur as proven by poop and regret. Is it CeeLo Green? CeeLo Green's on his head. Yes. Ah. (laughs) Also known as Gnaw Rolls Barkley. Boom. (laughs) Boom. Bravo. Uh, Now, does the CeeLo Green dinosaur pull his uh, ass out uh, in front of the audience? Uh, Because I got a funny story to tell you about that. Uh, CeeLo Green, we saw him at a show in Tennessee. And it was a it was a family friendly one. And CeeLo Green was on there and he came late. He was drunk. And uh, they're like, don't say the, the vulgar version of that song. And then he said, so fuck you. And then he turned, pulls his pants on, just moved yes. the audience and got arrested. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look it up. Oh, yeah. It was in Chattatooga, Tennessee. Chattanooga. That's fantastic. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully uh, your dinosaur, uh, Jake, has that that moon, uh, that mooning action. <laughs> Well, I think this takes us to the end of the episode, correct? No objection. Anyways, go out and watch Jawbreaker. We had a little really fun time talking about this with you guys, and I hope you enjoyed as much as we did. And this is Adrian saying good night and good dive. Is that what you're going to say? Oh, what am I going to say? Hold on. Oh, shit. What rhymes with good dive? Good night. Goodbye. (laughs) I always say good night. (laughs) <laughs> you don't have to do mine. Good day, my my wife says the slash you later. And she looks at me with the smarmiest shit eating grin I've ever seen every time. I think it's the funniest thing. This is Adrian saying goodbye and good die. Unless she wants to come up with her own. Thank you. Good night. And fuck you. I thought she was going to say goodbye and good night. <laughs> Godspeed. I hate all of you. I stopped recording. I'm done. See, I thought you were going to go the full uh, thank you, good night, and fuck you. <laughs> oh.